If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. The National Archives is the official archive of the UK government. We preserve and protect one of the most significant collections in the world, holding public records dating back over 1,000 years. From Doomsday Book to digital files and databases, we care for 11 million public records. To mark the 70th anniversary of the start of the Second World War, we've recorded a series of podcasts about the real-life events featured in some of the most popular war films of all time. To listen to them, visit www.nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash war on film. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and I'm joined today by our deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Coming up in this podcast... He decides to fight a campaign of annihilation against the French. He decides to remove French power from North America once and for all. That was Dan Snow on the Battle of Quebec. She broke one lady-in-waiting's finger in a fit of rage. She would throw things at them. And we've got Tracy Borman on Queen Elizabeth I's jealous streak. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy of the magazine later on in this podcast. Now, let me give you a quick reminder about our brand new website, bbchistorymagazine.com. If you haven't seen it yet, please do take a look. We relaunched at the start of September and there's lots of interesting historical content on it. 
This includes blogs from both Dan Snow and Tracy Borman, and also a new diary feature from three intrepid cyclists, the Wood Brothers, who are riding across Europe in the footsteps of Hannibal. He's the general who famously crossed the Alps with his army, including his war elephants, in the 3rd century BC. Also on the website, you'll find book reviews, special features, an index to all your back issues, a weekly quiz, and a forum where you can talk history. Do take a look at bbchistorymagazine.com. 250 years ago this month, British forces in North America pulled off a stunning victory over the French at the Battle of Quebec. It was an audacious triumph, overseen by the young General Wolfe, whose death at the battle turned him into one of the first heroes of the British Empire. Dan Snow has written about the battle in our latest issue, and a couple of weeks ago, Dan took a break from filming his next TV series to speak to our features editor, Rob Attar, about the battle and how it shaped the future of both the British Empire and North America. Why were the British fighting the French in Canada at this point? Since the discovery of the Americas, obviously, all the different European nations had carved out zones of influence within the continents, and France broadly had an empire, a very loose empire, over what is today Canada, but also right down into the Midwest, right down through the Ohio Valley, down the Mississippi, and to New Orleans. This was called New France. It was absolutely vast swathes of North America, but it was lightly populated with French people, and really it was a kind of loose confederation of Native American tribes who paid lip service to the idea of being loyal to King Louis. So it's an interesting kind of empire. Britain had a very different kind of empire, geographically very confined down the eastern seaboard, what are now the states from Maine down to Georgia on the eastern seaboard seaboard. But they were densely populated, huge amounts of industry, farming, lively urban centres, and the population was several times that of New France. But they were confined along this strip, and clearly the buffer zone between the two was a constant flashpoint. Mm. Uh, And both empires sought to extend their influence and interests within North America, and both empires came to blows. The fascinating thing about the Seven Years' War, and there have been battles in North America ever since, every time there was a war in Europe, Britain and France went to war in their colonial possessions as well, whether they're in India or West Africa or in North America, of course. The interesting thing about the Seven Years' War is it actually starts in North America. So for the first time, as, as people say, the tail was wagging the dog. It starts when a young subaltern called George Washington penetrates into what's today the Pennsylvania backcountry and into Ohio and delivers an ultimatum to a French commander to leave what is considered to be British ground. And he ambushes a French unit and the first shots of the Seven Years' War are actually fired in this kind of absolutely bizarre place in the Pennsylvania backcountry. And that brings Britain and France to war Uh, which is the first time it happened, so it shows the increasing importance of the North American possessions. And then basically Pitt, the elder, who is the Secretary of State, effectively, if you like, for the foreign ministers, often credited as being the genius behind the strategy, behind the Seven Years' War, Britain's effort in the Seven Years' War, he decides to fight a campaign of annihilation against the French. He decides to remove French power from North America once and for all. So what was the strategic importance of Quebec? Well, Quebec was the capital of New France. It was the linchpin of all France's possessions in North America. It was the port into which all supplies came. And and New France, the area we now know as Canada, the French possessions, depended upon imports from France. It wasn't self-sufficient in industrial goods. It was barely self-sufficient in food, and they needed lots of alcohol brought over, of course, from France as well. So it was the communications hub. It was the centre of government. It's the economic driving force behind the colony. I mean, Quebec was everything. Without Quebec, New France would and did simply fold. It took the British several months to capture Quebec. What caused this delay? 
It's a fascinating campaign. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about 759, the reason I love it, the story so much, is it's, it's important in a kind of geostrategic sense, but it's also fantastically interesting tactically. You know, it's a great story. Uh, Wolf penetrates deep into Canada, up the St. Lawrence River, thought to be unnavigable for ships of that size. The Royal Navy take him up there and deliver him right to the doorstep of Quebec. But in many ways, that's where the problem started. Everyone thought the river would be the hardest bit. In fact, the river was quite easy, the River St. Lawrence, getting up the river. The hardest bit was actually establishing a toehold from which you could engage in a close siege of Quebec. So the Brits occupied the opposite side of a river and an island on the river, but they couldn't get to the north side of the St. Lawrence where Quebec's actually situated. Every time they tried, they got rebuffed because the French were dug in into pre-prepared positions, trenches, artillery, really nasty stuff. So there's a couple of really bad setbacks that uh, the British have to endure. Another interesting factor in this is the attitude of the Native Americans, who are, in terms of the Quebec campaign, entirely on the side of the French. They regard the British as land-stealing, land-hungry, that the British modes of settlement are agricultural and industrial. They chop down all the trees, scare the animals off, and settle farming communities. The French, far less so. The French were happy to work with the Native Americans, broadly speaking. They were interested in trapping and hunting, and there wasn't the population pressure. So it meant the Native Americans could keep their land, they could keep their traditional modes of their lifestyles. So they're entirely fighting against the British in the campaign of the summer of 1759 in Wolfe's Theatre. And they provide a real enormous challenge to the Brits. They end up fighting guerrilla warfare. So Wolfe's troops, who are trained, as all 18th century British redcoats are, in the kind of classic linear battle, firing three rounds a minute with their brown besses, standing in ranks too like the thin red line, really. But in fact, they have to re-imagine warfare, and they have to learn how to fight counterinsurgency against these incredibly experienced bush fighters, the Native Americans. So there's a whole campaign going on at the same time that Wolfe's trying to get to grips with Quebec and bring it to a close siege. He's also having his outposts scalped, men mutilated, and his men live in a perpetual state of fear. How eventually were they able to overcome the French defences? Well, eventually, one of the most famous epics of British imperial history, eventually the Brits realise that what they have to do is use their huge manoeuvrability that control of the river gives them. It's Frankly, it's a naval victory. The Navy allows the British to get to put their troops on ships and then, and then move up and down the river with the ebb and flow of the tide, 10, 15 miles at a time, so the French don't know where the British are going to land. The French lose control of the river because of the dominance of the Royal Navy, and therefore they can't interdict those British ships. They have to just follow on horseback and on foot up and down the river bank, exhausting their own men. And Wolfe famously chooses a place called the Anse de Foulon. Um, he spots it, a narrow ravine leading up to the high ground around the city of Quebec, and he realises he can land men there at dawn. They can seize those heights, and finally they'll be in a position to either force the French to fight or lay siege to Quebec, which would fall quite quickly with modern siege artillery, etc., that Wolfe had with him. So it was a brilliant amphibious operation. They landed just at dawn. A small French guard was swatted aside, and Wolfe was in a commanding position so commanding that the French general Montcalm thought, I have to go and fight this man right now. Like Rommel at D-Day, he thought he had to throw everything he could at Wolf while they were still disembarking. And as a result, there was a pitched battle at which the French lose. It still held up as one of these incredible amphibious assaults. Famously, a, a guy at uh, Shrivenham, the High Command Staff College, said to me, it's a classic example in amphibious warfare of going where the enemy aren't. And although there was a small guard on the bank, Wolf, on the whole, found a soft underbelly. And it was a remarkably successful operation. Having said that, it was incredibly risky. And every time I write this, it really does send tingles down your spine because you realise there is such a fine line between being bold and being rash. And if Montcalm, if the French had managed to rush reinforcements to the landing area a little bit quicker, and if, if the attack had been a failure, which it easily could have been, Wolf would have been pilloried in history. Instead, he's seen as this great hero. And I always think that's, uh, that's military history for you. Fascinating.
And how important was Wolf's role himself in the victory? Well, you know, Wolf's a very interesting character because, of course, he was eulogised. He was killed at the moment of victory on the Plains of Abraham. So he became, in many ways, Britain's first imperial martyr, really before Nelson, if you like, the person that came to symbolise Britain's growing power in the world and was used to mythologise that at the time. The, the image of Wolf dying by Benjamin West became the most widely reproduced image in the 18th century. So there's a fascinating story. Wolf's name, Wolf's image is a fascinating story in itself. And he was eulogised. I mean, Winston Churchill famously said, Wolf's my hero. And subsequently, historians have come along and said actually Wolfe was a fairly average commander. He was tactically very astute. He was a good leader of men in the field, but strategically he was weak. He changed his mind. He vacillated. He fell out awfully with all his senior admirals, senior generals, and he ran a very poor strategic campaign, in fact. But where it counted, he made good decisions, and he was also impeccably brave in the field. And actually, he gave his men the courage to stand up to these Native American attacks that were actually incredibly corrosive. So there are pluses and minuses, but we certainly no longer see him as we used to. We, we don't no longer eulogise him. I mean, a, a century ago, my grandfather was reading books on Quebec, and it said if, if Wolfe had lived, uh, he certainly would have won the American Revolutionary War. He wouldn't have made the mistakes. And I think that that's clearly well, clearly counterfactual, we don't know, but I, I think there's no evidence that he would have been any better or worse than, than the commanders that did command British forces during those campaigns. How would you say the victory at Quebec compares with other great military triumphs? I think the victory at Quebec is hugely important. We forget now. You say Canada to someone and, and their eyes kind of slightly glaze over, but I mean, the fact is that Canada has been a very important part of Britain's history over the the last 250 years, and in many ways continue to do so. It's like that wonderful Chow and Lai quote, it's, in some ways it's too early to tell. You know, we're discovering now Canada's got the second, arguably the largest, oil reserves on the planet. Well, I think that the fact that they look to Britain as a mother country, they're Anglophile, they have the same legal systems as us, the same culture as us, I think may mean that that link with Canada is even more important in the future than it is now. But certainly during the wars, it goes without saying that they were absolutely vital. However, what people forget about 1799 is it's not just about Canada. It is about the whole of the Midwest. In the peace that followed the fall of Quebec, the capture of New France, France gave up its uh, rights to all of North America east of the Mississippi. So the whole area we now call the Midwest, Ohio, all those states down through there, Detroit, Michigan, all of those became British, all British territory and were then subsequently transferred to American sovereignty when they successfully fought for their independence. So the entire creation of an Anglophone superstate in North America, the USA, is as a result of this victory 250 years ago. And if France had been able to hold on to that territory, hold on to that backcountry, the USA would have been pinned to the shallow colonies along the East Coast and, of course, wouldn't have emerged as the global hegemon that it is today. So I think that the effects of 1759 are absolutely massive. You know, on another level, of course, they had a huge impact on the direction of the war in Europe, the Seven Years' War in Europe. The ability to keep funding Frederick the Great in his battle with France and Austria was hugely important. It's incalculably important. And also, there is the idea that what 1759 became to the British people, it, it became the foundation myth of empire, and it, together with the Battle of Kibron Bay, together with successes in India and West Africa and the Caribbean, 1759 is this remarkable year, and it's when people start to believe that passionately that God is an Englishman, and I think that the confidence created by that year is still driving the young subalterns of Kitchener's army, of Slim's army, and arguably even later than that. So it's important strategically, but it's incredibly important on the psychology of the nation and the psychology of empire. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. That was Dan Snow talking about the Battle of Quebec. You can read more about it in our September issue and in Dan's latest book, Death or Victory, The Battle of Quebec, which is published by Harper Press. Now, talking of books, in the magazine this month, we reviewed 12 new history books. Now, as it's the 70th anniversary of the start of the Second World War in September 1939, I've chosen a couple of books on that particular theme. OK, Sue, so what's your first choice? The first is 1939, Countdown to War by Richard Overy, which aims to show that war was far from inevitable and that during the last days of peace, the principal actors could all have made different choices. Hitler, for example, was convinced that the Western powers would not go to war. He was, of course, wrong, and on hearing the news that he was at war with Britain and France, he turned to his foreign minister, Ribbentrop, and asked, what now? Well, you can read the whole review now on our website. And what's your second choice? On the similar theme, my second choice is 1938 Hitler's Gamble by Charles McDonough. This looks at the year that Hitler turned his attention away from his domestic politics and started flexing his muscles internationally. It paints an engaging picture of the disaster that was developing inside Germany and was soon to engulf Europe as a whole. Again, you can read the full review of this book on our website and you can also look at every book review featured in the past few issues of BBC History magazine. They're searchable by category so that you can find books on any historical subject that interests you. Our next interview is with Tracy Borman, a regular contributor to the magazine and author of a new book on Elizabeth I. Her feature in the September issue of the magazine explores Elizabeth's jealous streak. I caught up with her to find out more. Um, so you've written a piece for us in the uh, magazine about Queen Elizabeth and specifically about the way that she treated the females at court. Now, uh, the, the general gist of the piece is that she became rather vindictive in her latter years towards these ladies. So perhaps we will start off by just considering Elizabeth's uh, personality as a young queen. 
Well, Elizabeth was actually quite different to the image that appears in her later years when she's very much kind of embittered against the women around her. In fact, when she came to the throne, it was, it was she who was the glamorous one. You know, she was the most desirable bride in Europe and she reveled in that attention. And so the women at her court were just sort of like the, the backdrop to this amazing new queen. So she was super confident, um, super flirtatious, and that's really how she kept the entire court in thrall because she controlled certainly all the all the men around her by um, being um, an extremely good flirt, as was her mother Anne Boleyn, and she wasn't at all threatened um, by the ladies who served her. Um, she was occasionally a little bit short-tempered with them if they didn't do quite what she wanted, um, but it's very, very different to that kind of growing jealousy that you see as she becomes a sort of embittered old queen in her later years. So, as a, as a young woman, you say she was the most desirable um, person in Europe, I suppose, in many sense. What, was that desirability due to her political position, or was she actually um, beautiful? Was she was she a, a pretty person? I wouldn't say pretty, but she had um, that certain indefinable um, attraction that her mother, Anne Boleyn, had also had. And, um, you know, not a conventional beauty at all, although by no means as unattractive as, for example, her half-sister, um, Bloody Mary, uh, who reigned before her. Um, but she was just very, very good at flirting, and she was very intelligent. She could outwit all of her male courtiers, and um, she was just excellent at keeping all of her courtiers in a sort of constant state of trying to please her and um, trying to win her favour. Um, so, I mean, when you see portraits of her, actually, she does to modernise, I think, look quite beautiful. Um, but she wasn't seen as, as that conventionally beautiful, um, as opposed to the likes of Mary, Queen of Scots, who, of course, was Elizabeth's great rival, who was seen as, the, you know, one of the most beautiful women in the world, although it's actually quite hard to understand why when you, when you look at portraits of Mary, I think. Mm. So was there, was there any vanity in Elizabeth? Did, was she a vain person? She was incredibly vain. Um, she, I mean, she took great care over her appearance. She had literally thousands of dresses, um, and she would spend hours, or her ladies would spend hours on her makeup and hair um, every day. And there's evidence that even from her early 30s, um, Elizabeth was experimenting with alchemy to try and um, capture the secret of everlasting youth. So it's certainly something that she was very, very conscious of from a very early age. You sort of chart how in her latter years she became uh, rather embittered towards the ladies at court, but what were these what were these ladies at court there for well it varied um there were various roles um for the ladies at court some of them were more essential than others um you know that there were the women of the bedchamber basically the lower down you got in the scale such as the women of the bedchamber the more work they had to do so um they would be on call literally 24 hours a day the queen you know she had a whim for something in the middle of the night you know glass of milk or whatever it might be then they'd be um, running to, to find that in the palace and um, making sure her apartments were were tidy, um, you know, arranging her dresses and running errands for, for her, whatever they may be, across the palace. So it was actually quite a demanding job. It was certainly not just decorative, whereas 
the higher ranking ladies were given positions such as lady of the bedchamber or lady of the privy chamber and they were much more of a, a sort of a backdrop really to make elizabeth look good she would she would insist that they wore black or white in order to set off her own really extravagant gowns and she would spend many hours actually both in public and in private with those ladies just conversing um with them gossiping really um and and generally just sort of setting herself off against the um, the rather plain appearance by by contrast to her own magnificence and what why was she making such a play of the of, of outshining everyone else at court was it was it was it in part the vanity or was it in some way uh, involved in in her need to 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 lead the country i mean given that the fact that she was a female uh in power which was uh mm. you know a, a difficult uh, position to be at that time so was 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 part of it all about keeping in power uh, it was absolutely about control i mean of course you know she had a natural sort of female jealousy of of a lot of these women but the real issue um and the real uh, mechanism by which elizabeth maintained control was through playing the um, center of attention really she wanted everybody to flock around her and listen to her you know cling on to her every word and and try to win her favor it was the way in which she could control all of the men at court she was you know a female ruler in a world dominated by men and she'd seen the example of her sister mary who had you know for various reasons but you know she'd failed pretty miserably to control her court because she deferred to her male courtiers she'd always sought their advice and while elizabeth of course did have great advisers such as lord burley she made it very clear that she was in ultimate control so as well as being a flirt she would also um refer to her very female um vice of being um, indecisive but in fact she knew exactly what she was doing she just didn't like to commit to one decision or another and she would just keep um changing her mind to the great frustration of her courtiers but actually it made it very clear just who was in control in the latter years of her reign she presumably she starts to lose the 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 the, the power that she has as a, a young woman and the confidence that she has um and that means that she starts taking a rather different attitude towards the women in her court so what happens yeah it's actually quite sad to chart the decline of elizabeth's um influence i mean it was very much linked to her fading looks and the fact that she herself even though she reveled in the attentions of young men such as the earl of essex when she was kind of 40 years their senior she knew really that they were just play acting and that they were chasing around after all the young women at court but it was symptomatic of a general loosening of her grip on the affairs of the court she wasn't as obviously as as a, quite as astute as she used to be but more importantly the older she got the more her courtiers were looking to whoever her successor might be um and that was absolutely typical many monarchs had suffered from this you know they just no matter how long they lived or how vibrant they might be in their later years people didn't expect them to to sort of live all that long and therefore as soon as they showed signs of aging physically then they would start to look for who their successor would be and of course with Elizabeth her successor ended up being north of the border um King James VI of Scotland the son of Elizabeth's most despised rival Mary Queen of Scots and the courtiers there was a sort of regular train of courtiers going up and down between England and Scotland trying to win favor with the new king and really neglecting um the queen as one courtier said neglecting her as the sun already set
Mm. And, and presumably she felt that, that uh, neglect quite keenly. Absolutely. And you can see that she, you know, she lashed out in frustration and her ladies at court really bore the brunt of this. And she became increasingly violent and short-tempered. You know, she broke one lady-in-waiting's finger in a fit of rage. She would throw things at them, scream at them. Um, and, you know, one courtier described her, her moves as being very much like a kind of gathering storm that would suddenly kind of burst out upon um, all alike, but most particularly upon her, her ladies. And Elizabeth hated being out of control. It was not something that she'd ever experienced. She'd always been the supreme political manoeuvre and she'd been used to people you know, adoring her, obeying her. She couldn't stand the fact and she knew very well that people were now turning their attention to James. Hmm. Okay. So there have been some quite memorable um, TV depictions of Elizabeth recently and we have this idea of, of a very ugly, haggard old woman, you know, with, with uh, layers and layers of paint on her face and, and you know, wigs covering up her, her, her sparse growing hair. Is that accurate? Was she an old hag when she, when she, <laughs> when she get, got to her final years? I think um, that, that if you believe the reports of uh, foreign ambassadors, then yes. Um, in short, she certainly had um, lost her looks um, because, and, and actually, ironically, the the very cures that she sought um, to maintain her youthful um, sort of allure were the things that that destroyed her. So, you know, the white lead makeup that she wore every day actually rotted her face. So, she was incredibly and actually prematurely wrinkled. Um, she didn't help herself by trying to dress much younger than she actually was. So, she would have, you know, bright red wigs um, once her, hair, her own hair had turned grey and started to fall out. Um, she continued to plaster on ever more, um, you know, thick, thicker layers of, of makeup. Um, but, you know, some of the descriptions are just uh, wonderful but painful at the same time, such as the Venetian ambassador who described her as being of a repulsive physical nature. And, you know, they, they, these ambassadors would just be laughing at the uh, at Elizabeth because, she, you know, they saw right through her. They, they saw the way she was just trying desperately to, to hold on to the mask of youth that she'd created throughout her life. And, and um, she, she was failing. She was dressing like a 20-year-old when she was in her late 60s, and it, it just, frankly, looked ridiculous. Did, did male rulers, contemporary male rulers in the 16th century, have any sort of similar problems to that? I mean, as they aged, did, were they seen to be failing and, 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 and were they derided for, for, for looking old, or was it just unique to, to Elizabeth as a, as a female ruler? That's a really interesting question. I think it, well, it was a, a problem that was much more serious for women. I, I think you, you find it a lot less. I mean, when you look at, for example, Henry VIII, um, who was, you know, grossly fat, ulcerated, you know, had to be carried everywhere, and yet still he had the presence of the great monarch who everybody bowed down to um, right to the end of his life. And I think it's very, very hard to point to to male monarchs who who lost that grip on, uh, on on their rule in quite the same way as a result of their their appearance. I mean, it's, it's grossly unfair. I, I think it's, to be honest, it's something that, that probably still continues a little bit today. Men are just seen as having, you know, greater longevity in terms of their, their, their looks and even their mental capacity, although the latter certainly isn't true, I don't think. That was Tracy Borman. Her new book, Elizabeth's Women... The Hidden Story of the Virgin Queen is published now by Jonathan Cape. It will also be featured as BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week at some point in September. 
Now you can read features by Tracy Borman and indeed from Dan Snow in September's BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. If you'd like to subscribe, um, the benefits are that you'll save money and you'll never miss an issue. You can also get it delivered directly to your door. We have great subsidies available, whether you're in the UK or overseas. You can find all details on our website at bbchistorymagazine.com. Now, the Maggies is a national poll to celebrate and award the best magazine covers of the past year. In November last year, BBC History magazine commemorated the 90th anniversary of the First World War with a special issue. The cover from that issue features in the specialist category of the Maggies Awards, so if you liked our cover and would like to vote in the Maggies, you can do so online. As an incentive, each person who votes gets a £2.50 gift voucher to use against a magazine subscription of their choice. You can vote and find out more at www.themaggies.co.uk. So that's it. Thanks as ever for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Our next podcast, out in a couple of weeks' time, will cover historic home security measures and Henry V.